and welcome to the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today we bring the third lesson in this short series titled, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. Class teacher Doug Brady has carefully built this study, showing us one of the most interesting and dedicated people in the Bible, Elijah. You will certainly want to be looking at the Bible verses as we go through this and other lessons. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 17 for today's lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our ever-growing class members are excited each Sunday as Doug presents the lesson which he has carefully and prayerfully made. We would love to meet you and invite you to visit our class if you are in the area. As I said, we're part of the First Baptist Church in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets on Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. And we hope we can see you soon. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class and find a good seat. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. If you have your Bibles here, you may want to open them to chapter 17 of 1 Kings because we may be going back and forth a great deal. I am excited about today and what we're going to study. Uh, and there's some things that I have been kind of holding back and not telling you uh, because I want to tell them to you today in this setting. And uh, I've got to work on my uh, desire to skip some things to get to it. But we're going to go through and we're going to look at this man, Elijah, you remember in review, this is an unusual man. He wasn't like any other man that's ever lived. Do you remember what his name means? My God is Yahweh. Now he's living in a time when the king and the queen and everybody else in control are saying, no, our God is Baal. That's a little bit at odds here, but the reason that God chose him was because he was a man of conviction. Now, I'm trying to, to help you with this, and I want you to see it. What is a man of conviction? There's three things that he was convinced of. What were those three? Does anybody remember the first one? That God's real. That's number one. What is it, Don? He's God's representative. Yep, he's God's man. That's number two. Now, can you tell me number three? If he'll put it on the board. Or, yeah, that's what I thought. Anybody remember number three? That's exactly right. That God has the power and the resources to enable him to meet whatever challenge was put before him. Now, in a, in a, in a way of review, what does it mean to be a man of conviction? Real simple, that you are convinced of the accuracy or truth of certain things. Elijah was convinced that God was real, that God, he was God's representative, and God had the power and the resources he needed. Now, what I haven't been telling you is, 
how do you become convinced? Well, you're going to have to wait for a few minutes as we go on. Now, you remember last time God sent him to a, a brook named Cherith, which was at the bottom of a wadi that's like 500 feet down. Do you remember what Cherith means? It meant to be cut off. And when God sent Elijah there, he was cut off from human contact for 18 months. 18 months all by himself. What was God's purpose for sending him to the brook? Well, he was going to protect him and change him. He had a process. One of the things he was going to do was to soften him. One of the second things he was going to do was to shape him. And one of the third things he was going to do was sharpen him. And you remember last time we compared it to what? Making a cold chisel. You remember that? And how you soften. And how you, you shape. Now, was the softening process of the cold chisel, would, would the cold chisel have selected that process? No. What about the shaping with the hammer? No. Or the sharpening with the file? No. Didn't want any of those things. But at the bottom of the wadi, God used solitude. He used silence. He used obscurity. And he used monotony to accomplish those goals. Now, are any of those four things something you want regularly in your life? No? Yes, my wife wants silence. Well, I can understand that, but I think she's probably over these years learned to just ignore. <laughs> you say, well, I have a hearing problem. I, but uh, he used that, those same things in David's life. He used those same things in, in Moses' life. He used the same things in Paul's life. And so now we come to the next phase of the process. You should look at it this way. The Brook Cherith was basic training. Now comes Zarephath, two years at Zarephath. It's the next level, like to become an army ranger, to become a marine raider, or to become a Navy SEAL. Uh, those specialized types of training, to become an Israeli paratrooper. This is what's different. You see, the dried up brook was only the beginning. Elijah would be extended far beyond the quiet days that he had spent there in isolation and meditation at the bottom of the wadi. This was going to be quite different. Do you know that God is going to send him to a place named Zarephath? And what Zarephath means? It means the smeltering place. Evidently, there was a lot of metal working and, and metal uh, uh, shaping going on there. Let me show you here. You can look down the bottom, you see Judea, you see Samaria, as you look at that, and I ought to point it to you, I guess, so you can see. Jerry's going to show you in just a second, but not right yet. And uh, so you have your bearings. But you can see right there where Judea, Jerusalem is up there, and you look up there in Samaria, and there's the capital of Samaria. But you always have these two cities together, Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. They are the two major cities in Phoenicia. Show them where Tyre is, right there. Now, show them where Sidon is, right there. Now, right in between them, and really as a suburb of Sidon, on the coast is this town called Zarephath. And that's where he was told to go. And 
he, he spent, uh, is going to spend even more time there than he spent down at, at Cherith. And uh, God is going to turn up the heat. But this time, he's going to turn up the heat not to soften Elijah, but to harden him. He's going to harden him. He's going to temper him, and he's going to hone him. He's going to make him so sharp a weapon that God's going to take Elijah, and he's going to use him to cut off the non-existent head of Baal. And we're going to see that when we get to Mount Carmel. Sidon has the world's largest mosque. Well, they're just following in the footsteps of Baal, aren't they? So, it's nice of you to bring up things like that, Don. Even though you're an Amalekite, I appreciate that. All right. Zarephath, I'm going to keep going. Zarephath was really like a crucible. A crucible that creates Christ-likeness. That's what he's going to do in Elijah. It's going to be used to bring all the impurities and the dross of Elijah's life up to the surface so God can skim it off. So as we begin, we're going to see as Elijah sits there at Cherith and the brook's dried and there's no more water to drink, what God does. But before we get to his word, let's pray. Father, as we open your book and we ask you to show us what you want us to see, I pray that you will have your Holy Spirit teaching us in depth this morning and that he will speak to each of us in our hearts and he will place these principles not just in our minds, but that he will burn them down into our souls and we will come to recognize the love that you have for us the grace and mercy that you're willing to show to us over and over and over again. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 8, it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. Now, if you were looking in your Bible, and you were looking at chapter 17, verse 8, if you have some Bibles, there would be a little topograph a typographical uh, symbol for a paragraph there. It's the start of a new paragraph. Some of your Bibles, instead of that, simply make the letter 8 bold. But this is a new paragraph. What does it mean when you have a new paragraph? Well, it can mean several things. It can mean a, a passage of time. It can mean a waiting period. Or it can mean an indication that a new event is coming. I believe that's what this means here in this paragraph uh, indication in this one. Because the brook has run dry. How long generally can a human being go without water and live? Three days, most people, unless you have a serious heat-sun situation. Then maybe knock you down to two days. So Elijah can't hang around there very long if he's going to last. And I believe that when the brook ran dry, we see the start, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, arise, go to Zarephath. Now, this is an opportunity I think to see in Elijah's life, was he practicing radical obedience? 
You remember, radical obedience is immediate, unquestioning, unconditional, complete, consistent, and wholehearted. Now, let's look at this verse, uh, this one part, evidence of radical obedience. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying three things, arise, go, and stay, right? Arise, go, and stay. If we look at verse 10, what did he do? So he arose and went. There was no questioning. There was, why do you want me to go there, God? Don't you know where that is and what that's about? So he arose and he went. He is exercising radical obedience. What happens to the man or woman who exercises regularly radical obedience in their life? God blesses them. Exactly right. I may not turn you into a golden statue, but he blesses you, and I wanted you to see that. Now, there are also going to be some lessons here that he is going to teach through this radical obedience. I think three of them that I want you to see. Number one, God always knows where his man or his woman is. Does God ever forget about you? Does he ever forget where you are in a situation that you're in? He never forgets. He always knows. He's always, you know, he doesn't delegate. Angel, you watch over this and tell me and let me know what's going on. He knows. He's omniscient. You're right. Number two, the second lesson I want you to see. God knows where Elijah's going. He knows where he's going. He told him, but he told Jonah to go to Nineveh. But he knew where Jonah was going too. And he had a whale shark there waiting. Some people want to see it's a whale. It's not a whale. It's a fish. And the largest fish, a whale shark can be about the size of a school bus. And it has swallowed men before. And if you happen to be in its way, it may just swallow you if you were there. Now, I want you to look at the latter part of this verse Uh, Verse 9, it says, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, you think about it. If you're going to go somewhere and stay for a while, do you want a widow to be taking care of you? Especially one during that time, because what was at the lowest end of society? Widow. The only one below the widow was a slave. So that's not, wouldn't be, say, the most reassuring statement. And, but he says, I have commanded or appointed or ordained a widow to provide for you. So God sends Elijah to Zarephath. Now, why would God want to send his man who he is going to use to try and bring Israel back to Yahweh and to leave Baal to Zarephath? Why would he do that? Zarephath is attached to Sidon, the capital city of Phoenicia. Sidon is the center of Baal worship. He is sending Elijah to the enemy's stronghold, hometown of Jezebel. Exactly right. Why would he do that? I have been able to find at least three reasons, I believe, why he's going to do that. And I want you to see them. The first one is illustrated in a psalm that most of y'all know, Psalm 23. It's Psalm 23, 5a. What does it say? You, that is God, 
David is saying, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I want you to see that just a second. I want you to imagine the situation before David got there when he's going to fight Goliath. But before he got there, you have the Israelite army on on a hillside on one side of this valley. You have the Philistine army on the other side, and there's a valley in between. Can you imagine if all of a sudden right in between there's a table sit there at the end of the day and appears and then some waiters bringing in a bunch of food and somebody walks down from the Israeli side and sits down at that table and starts to eat. How do you think those Philistines would react? (laughs) What does he think he's doing? This is an insult to us. That guy must be awfully bold to be sitting down there eating dinner in the middle of the battlefield. But that's what God said he was going to do. Does God ever do things that are quite on the bold side? Yeah, he does. And it's really cool if he uses you to do it. And you're going to see that he's going to use Elijah. And so first thing he says, I'm going to send my man up there to spend some time in, in Baal country. But there's a second reason that I see that he's sending his man up there. Although God hates Baal, he loves Baal worshipers. He does. Because he made them. And he doesn't want them worshiping Baal. He doesn't want them going to hell. He wants them to spend eternity with him. And because of that, he also knows that there's a Baal worshiper and her son that are about to die. And he knows Baal can't save them, can't save her, can't save her son, but Yahweh can. And so he's sending his man up there to save her life. Now, the most important thing is the third reason. Why is he sending his man up there? Is it just to save her life? No. He knows her heart is ripe for coming to him. And so he's going to take his man. He's going to send him through some dangerous, extremely dangerous territory, as we're going to see in a minute. And go up there so that he can be with her, share God's reality, and bring her and her son into God. You're going to be able to meet them one day. They're going to be coming as guests to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And you can ask that boy, and you can ask that woman about what it was like in these things that we are describing. And so he wants to give them that opportunity. And and you see, that brings up the third lesson that we have here that I wanted you to see. God had prepared a place for his prophet. Now, it doesn't necessarily seem that way to start with, but God has prepared a place. So let's look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please, Give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Now, God said that he had commanded or appointed or ordained a widow there to take care of Elijah. Doesn't really seem that way at the start. Uh, When we first meet her, does she appear to have received it? Well, yep, she's going to get him something to drink. But then he asked her for something to eat. And I'm gonna, you're going to see her response in just a second. 
Now, she's going to tell him, this is our last meal. After this, we're going to die. There's nothing left. First of all, that's the provision God has made for Elijah. But here's a question. Does a man of God ask a woman to give him her last meal? Does that sound right to you? To ask a woman to give you her last meal? Well, I'd have to see how fat she was. He asked a boy for this meal, and he sat by, what, 20 pounds? I now remember one like that in a long time. But be that as it may, if it results in changing her eternity, he asked for the meal. Because God sent him there. And there's a purpose that you're going to see. But Elijah's going to be subject to two tests. This widow is, in effect, going to be subject to two tests. The first test is this. It's the test of first impressions. First impression. What do I mean by that? You see, we should never underestimate that first impressions become many times a test. You look at somebody... And you immediately form an opinion about them. Let me give you some examples. You look at somebody and you see the color of the skin and you immediately form an opinion about them. You see a female in an outfit that a fighter pilot wears and you immediately form an opinion about them. You look at somebody who's living out on the street and basically has nothing and you immediately form an opinion about them. It's a test of first impressions. How are you going to respond? I mean, there's a lot of us, if we were Elijah in this situation and learned what, what this woman told him, God, what are you doing? You want me to stay there? How am I going to say she's going to be dead within a month? You know, I don't have anything that I can give her. Oh, yeah, you do. But that, that could be the first thing. You know, Elijah has left Cherith and traveled, you know, 75 to 100 miles. You look at this. He, now, he can't travel straight there because he's got to go down to the Jordan River Valley so he'll have water to drink and follow it up and then finally come to Zarephath. When he gets there, he's tired, he's hungry, and he's thirsty. Here's the widow that's going to take care of you, Elijah. Well, no, what do you mean? She's eating and dying. Test of first impressions. I want you to see that. Now, let's look at verse 12 where she says these things. But she said to him, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in a bowl and a little oil in a jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Is death by starvation a nice form of passing? No. That's what he's, she's telling him. And you can tell by the words, I think, that she chose. There's a little uh, oppression, worry, concern. What is she most concerned of, do you think, Damaris, about what's going to happen to she and her son? Who does she have to watch? Die. Now you think of that, starved to death, and there's nothing she can do about it. There's nothing she can give him. Yeah, and you want me to give it to you. Uh, Elijah is now going to face the second test, and so is she. The test of physical impossibilities. Physical impossibilities. 
Elijah was now faced with a situation that most people would admit is impossible. He didn't have the means to change it. She doesn't have the means to change it. And there's also this. Why is everything going bad for her? Because there's been 18 months of drought and the economy is in the toilet. That's why. And why is that happening? Because Elijah prayed it would. But Elijah knew that ravens do not share their food, their food with human beings. They don't do that. You see a raven with something in his mouth, I wouldn't go up and try and, and get him to give it to you because he's not going to. They don't do that. You see, he had been prepared for the impossible at the Brook Cherith. This woman probably experienced both wonder and bewilderment by what he's going to tell her, starting in verse 13. But now he was in the presence, she was in the presence of a man of conviction. And it caused her to follow his instructions and do and do what he asked. Did you notice how she started this passage in verse 12? As the Lord your God lives. Now, wait a second. She's in Baal worshiping country, right? First of all, let's look at this. There's two names uh, for the divine being there in that verse. Can anybody tell me what the first one is in, in Hebrew? Yahweh. How do you know that, Don? Because it's all caps. If you see Lord or God in all caps, that means it's Yahweh. Now, the second one. You know what that one is? Elohim. Elohim. With a capital G, but little O-D, it's Elohim. If you saw Lord with a capital L, but a little O-R-D, what would that mean? Adonai. Those are the three primary names in Hebrew for God. How did she know this name Yahweh? And it's interesting, she says, as the Lord your God. Well, she's being truthful, not her God yet. It's his, but she sees that in Elijah. And what more does she say that's so important? As he lives, he's real. Do you see that? Not like Baal, who can't help them. They're in the middle of a drought. Baal's supposed to be the God of rain and fertility, but no help. And I want you to see this change now as going on in her. So what does Elijah do? Because this is going to be a key turning point in this widow's life and the son's life. Right here. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Do as you have said, but bring me a little bread cake from it first. Bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and your son. And she's thinking, but there won't be any flour left. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth again. For the next two years, that bowl never didn't have enough flour for a meal. Now, after you use it, it may not have, there wasn't any flour there. But when the next time came, there was flour there. The same with the cruise of oil. They used all the oil and there was none left. But when the next mealtime came, there was oil. Now that's what's going to happen for two years. Kathy, what'd you have? Do you think that she knew of, of Elijah because of when he had put 
the curse on them for the rain? Do you think people talked about that? I'm not so sure up in Zarephath they did. But I think something's speaking to her. Now, can you imagine this going on? Let's say, Natalie, this was happening to you. And that night, you make the bread. Samuel's there. Elijah's there. He sees it's empty. And he says, Mom, we're not going to have any more. And you say, well, wait till morning. In the morning, there's sufficient flour to eat. You say, look there. How did it get there? God put it there. I would bet Samuel, the next time I say, I'm going to step and watch that bowl. <laughs> I bet he would too. <laughs> yeah. Because when I was his age, I would have said, I'm going to watch that bowl. And you start thinking about that. Now, let's look again at what Elijah said to this woman. Elijah said to her, do not fear. You know, when you're scared and somebody says to you, do not fear. Oh, yeah, I can just stop being afraid. Yeah, like how? From God's perspective, what is the opposite of fear? Faith. Faith, exactly right. What he's saying is, trust me. Trust my God. You've recognized that my God's alive. I'm telling you now, trust him. And you will see. And so what he's doing, do you know that in the scripture, there are 80 passages that say, do not fear. And every time you see that, it should be, do not fear. Instead, trust me. That's what eliminates fear. Now you think about that. If Julie was out in my backyard and about 10 feet from her looking at her was a rat, she would be tremendously fearful. But if all of a sudden Jesus showed up and he put himself in between Julie and the rat, do you think she'd be scared? No. It's all in how, how much you think he's real and how much you trust him. Eliminates fear. Now, I want us to go a little deeper. This is something I've been wanting to share with you for a little while, but I wanted you to see that. We've learned that Elijah is a man of conviction. She sees that in him. She recognizes that. That's why she refers to him as a man of God, a man of Yahweh. And the next thing we learn is how do you get conviction? You got to be convinced of certain things, right? All right. You got to be convinced the truth of certain promises and facts. We stopped there. How do you become convinced of a promise or a fact, the reality of those things or the accuracy of those things? That's the question. How do you become convinced? Where does it come from? This is the key to being a man or woman of conviction. You have to understand it. It is that important for you to see. And I want you to understand that this this morning. Being convinced of something comes from experiencing faith on trial. Faith on trial, witnessing it confirmed and rewarded. Elijah was given the chance to go to Zarephath. There's nothing here, God, to eat. That's all right. I'll take care of you. And the birds started coming in the morning and the night. For 18 months was Elijah's faith confirmed and rewarded. So when he comes up now to Zarephath and God tells him to tell this woman, that oil run, it won't run out, that flour won't run out, does he have any trouble trusting and believing? He's she does. She's going to have to put her faith to the test. Will you believe in God or not? 
Now, some people would say, well, you know, she's going to die anyway. What has she got to lose? You know, but the fact is, she now is putting her faith on the line. She's going to tell. Is this God of this man, who it seems to me is real, is he really going to come through for me? For two years, her faith is confirmed. Now she's convinced of the reality of God. He, she's convinced that Elijah was his man and that God has the power and the resources for whoever trusts him. That's what he learned. That's how powerful this is. That's how we get there. But who has to go first? We do with trusting. He's made the promises. We have to go first. And I want you to see that because she's now convinced and you'll see that more as we go on. Now, before we finish today, I want us to look at some principles that I think are really important. There's seven of them that I found in this passage that I want to share with you. And I want you to see, Elijah, he went from hiding, purposeful exposure. He's exposed. Is it really dangerous for him? Oh, yes. Let's look. At 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 10. This is later. Elijah is showing himself for the first time to a representative of Ahab. And this is what that representative says. As the Lord your God lives. You see that again? Just like the uh, widow. As the Lord your God lives, there is no name, nation, or kingdom where my master, that is Ahab, has not sent to search for you. And when they said, he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. Now, you know, you send an emissary to a foreign country. Is Mr. Snowden here? No, not here. Well, we want you to swear to us that he's not there, that you searched for him and you couldn't find him. You know, they said, get the heck out of here. We're not doing that. You know, Ahab is basically threatening war. If you don't invasion, if you don't, he is serious about this. He is looking everywhere for Elijah. He hates Elijah. Somebody, let me ask you this. Do, Don, does Baal hate Elijah? You better believe no, he doesn't because he doesn't exist. <laughs> that was a trick question. I thought I've worked with you on these lawyer questions before. So the Baalites hate him. Yeah, he knew he, he didn't know really how exposed he was and what all was going on, but Elijah did know this. He knew that if God told him to go, he'd already made provision for the trip. And so he had no problem. Second principle I want you to see. God's direction is often surprising, but don't try and figure it out. Why don't I go into Baal country? If God leads you to a place like Zarephath, don't try and figure it out. When uh, what you have to recognize is this, that I want you to see, that it's, I think it's important for us to understand. You don't try and understand God's motive. If God places you in a difficult situation, if you trust Him, you will stay there and seek God's experience, seek to experience God's peace. You will. He will put you in difficult situations. When He does... Stay there and look for God's peace. He promises it to you. You see, God's leading at times does not make sense to us. 
But that's where faith comes in. That's where faith comes in. We've got to trust Him. Now, a third principle, I think, to consider. The beginning of a divine adventure can look bad to us, but we have to hang in there and give God a chance to show us His purposes. It can look bad. Don't panic when nothing seems right. You see, our sworn enemy wants you to turn around and leave. Don't stay here. Look at it. It doesn't look right. Yep. When you get to that point right there, isn't that what's going to, the enemy is going to tell you all the things that's opposite to what God says? You're exactly right, Hayes. They, all of those enemies are going to be, in fact, I think Satan maybe will personally whisper in your ear, this can't be what God really intended. He never intended this for you. You've made a mistake. You shouldn't have gone to Zarephath. That's what he's doing. Yep. I'm sure as those three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or really Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and that furnace was burning. Satan whispered here, you're making a big mistake here, guys. If you don't get killed, you could still have, God could use you in this empire, and you could have influence on this man. Don't throw this away and be foolish and stubborn and hard-headed. No, God's plan for influence was much greater. But Satan's a liar. And he is the best liar you ever met. Now, some of you think you know some good liars. Can't beat old Lou. He is the father of lies. And so I want you to see that the situation from this God brought salvation to that widow and that boy. They were open, but God had to have somebody bring the gospel to them. Salvation, the reality of God. And that's what Elijah did. Now, the fourth principle I want you to see. Many of God's promises are conditional. That is, they're dependent on a proper response. What did Elijah say to her? Do not fear. What in effect did that mean? Just trust him. If you trust him, he will come through. She did, and God did. And I want you to see that. Through that, she taught her boy to trust God. And he learned it. You think that boy will ever forget the flower every morning and every evening? No, he won't ever forget that. We were going to die. Elijah's God saved us. Yahweh did it. You see, many times his promises include preceded by instructions. What did he say, Elijah? Rise and go. What did Elijah say to that woman? Fix me a meal first. A promise fulfilled is often the result of obedience. And when promises have conditions, our obedience must precede God's provision. What did James say about him? The prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Two triggers in that promise. Fervent, righteous. Does God listen to the prayers of his righteous people? If you've turned your back on him and are walking away, is he going to listen to your prayers? Not going to respond. He promises that. But if you turn back towards him, that changes. Why would anybody want to give away access to the creator of the universe? Well, you believe and you've done it though. And I've done it. And we've all done it. How foolish sometimes we are. 
The next principle, the number five, I want you to see. A little is much in the hands of God. That small bit of flour and oil lasted two years. God can use something small if he's allowed to fulfill, allowed full and complete access to it. What do I mean? Well, think about the example of the five loaves and the two fish. What if that boy said, yeah, I'm willing to give it. I'm going to keep the one loaf and one fish for me. That didn't work. You give him everything, he turns it into all you could possibly need. Manna is in the same way. How much does he give? They supply except on Friday. Then he gives you two. So you don't have to gather on the Sabbath. But that's the way. And if you get more and you, or you, you, you tried to save it for the next day, it rot. Nothing worse than rotten manna. And worms crawling in it. And, well, anyway. Now, let's go on to the next one. This widow had to make a faith decision. And I want you to see that. Whose lives Damaris were hanging on that faith decision she had to make? She and her son. She was making this decision for both. You remember what Joshua said, as for me and my family, we'll serve the Lord. She's got to make a decision that's going to affect her son. Now, can she make the salvation decision for her son? No. But to be raised in a godly home now, she has a chance. Can you imagine, you know, Elijah showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Frank, could you imagine if somebody knocked on your door this evening and you open the door and there's this guy and he looks Middle Eastern and he says, my name's Elijah. You studied me this morning. I'd like to come and live at your home for two years. Would you say, no, I'm not interested in taking on any borders? He better ask Yvonne first. <laughs> no, if it was really Elijah, you'd say, come on in, Yvonne, you need to meet our new house guests. Would that not be amazing to have somebody like that living with you for two years? It, it, it's just, so what you need to see, now, there's something else you need to see, because this happens periodically. This woman was trusting. Who was she trusting? She really was trusting Elijah. She didn't know Yahweh, right? She was trusting Yahweh through Elijah that what he was telling her is the truth. When you share the gospel with someone who doesn't know God, less, they got two people to trust. What you're saying and what the Holy Spirit is doing wooing. But it's a combination. They got to believe that what you're telling them is the truth, right? If, what they, if they think you're lying to them, are they going to invite Jesus into their life? No. Yep. She, but the Bible says God commanded her to do it, so he trusted him. She trusted him too. Well, when she got there, she wasn't ready to take him in. She said, I'm going to eat this last meal. I like appointed. But just because God appointed her doesn't mean she knows that she's been appointed. It can also be translated ordained. Just because he ordained her doesn't mean she knows yet. I mean, what did Paul tell us? He said, well, I've been picked to be his missionary since before I was born. When he was on the way to Damascus, did he think he was Jesus' missionary? No. He, that changed. But you see, that's kind of a pointed. Sometimes we don't really know. 
When I was growing up, I didn't know I was going to be a Bible teacher. I had somebody who wanted me to become that, but I didn't know that. I wanted to be in the Navy, and then I wanted to be a lawyer. But I didn't have plans to be a Bible teacher. That changed. And so, you know, when my son was growing up, one of them wanted to be a sports journalist, and that's what he believed he was going to be, and he studied for. The other one was going to be an architect, and that's what he believed, and he was going to be. And they're not sports journalists or an architect, and each of them have gotten a call from God of what he wants them to do. Hopefully they'll both succeed in that. But be that as it may, yep. You know, this lesson is, I never thought about, I wonder what happened to that young boy. I can't tell you, it'll ruin the story. <laughs> I can't tell you, it'll ruin the story. You see? I want you to think about maybe one more time of this kind of trusting. Two people were walking up side by side on Mount Moriah. One of them carried a knife and the other, and the fire, and the other carried a bunch of uh, sticks on his back. And Isaac said, I see the knife and I see the fire and the wood, but I don't see the sacrifice. And Abraham looked at him and said, the Lord's going to provide the sacrifice. Now, could Isaac, uh, as a 10 to 12-year-old, overpowered a 110-year-old? Absolutely. Could he have run and not gotten caught? Yes, but he didn't. Because they say things eye to eye. Isaac trusted God through his father Abraham, that Abraham gave him the word. Where did Elijah get the words to say to her that the flower was going to last? From God. God gave it to him. And so, you look in verse 16, it clearly says that. Isaac trusted his father. This woman trusted Elijah. And that's the way things should be. My sons trusted their parents to tell them the truth about God's word and how to be saved. Now, one final thing that I want you to see. Elijah has been in hiding for a long time. But sooner or later, a man of conviction will have to stand alone and speak the truth, and Elijah's time's coming. Now, are there some people who believe in Yahweh that are still in the kingdom of Israel? Yes. Are they going to be willing to stand beside him at Mount Carmel? No. Elijah will stand alone. But that's what a man or a woman of conviction will do. That's God's plan. Because you see, when Gideon got 33,000 men to follow him to fight against the Midianites and the Amalekites and those who were attacking, they had like 130,000. And the Gideon goes to God and he says, I don't have enough men. And he says, oh no, you have too many. And he willed it down to just 300 left. That was the original 300 by the way. But I want you to see, there's going to come, if we become a man or woman of conviction, there's going to be a time we're going to have to stand alone. And maybe no one will be standing with us, but we have to be willing to stand alone no matter what. Yes? Doesn't it give, when, when that person stands alone, doesn't it give faith and hope to so many? Yes. And then they rise up, and when, when, when Elijah ran away, and God said, you're not alone, there's all these other 
men of God that are standing with you, but they weren't at the time. They weren't at the time, but that gives them when they can see that. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could meet together today, and I thank you for preserving this book of 1 Kings for us. Father, you know that we have been praying that an altar call will be rekindled and started in our church. And I thank you for answering yes to that prayer. I pray, Father, that you will show us a response confirming that today. Now, Father, I want to take this time to pray for our nation. You know that our nation has been following the course of Romans 1, starting in verse 18, denying you, denying your law, denying your precepts, and ending up in perversion and wickedness. The nation of Israel did that. The kingdom of Judah did that. Over and over and over, this has happened in history. And I know your judgment must be near. But I pray, Father, that you show mercy on America and that you bring about a revival. Now, I know to do that, your people are going to have to pray. And they're going to have to get down on their knees and their prayers are going to have to be earnest and fervent. But I pray that you'll cause us to do that. We have seen answers after answers that you have given us that were wonderful. Help us not to be in any way intimidated or believing that maybe it won't happen. So, Father, I pray that you will bring about those kind of prayer warriors and that you will bring about that kind of revival and that the hearts of the men and the women of this nation will turn back to you. They'll turn from their wickedness and they will trust you, believe in your reality, and that you love them and that you are willing to forgive them and that you are willing to heal our land. Father, if that is not your will... I pray your return will be soon. And I offer these prayers in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.